Hey, Lassia, how are you doing? Hey, Dan, I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Really well, thanks, really well. I've got a question for you, Lassia. Do you consider yourself Gen Z? So I don't consider myself Gen Z. I think technically I'm on the cusp. I was born in 1996, so I think I could I could be categorized as Gen Z or a millennial, but I'd probably go somewhere in the middle. I think the main reasons I don't consider myself to be Gen Z are, firstly, I'm not on TikTok. I definitely don't understand their fashion, but I don't think I'm kind of as bold and brave as a lot of Gen Z seem to be. It's really interesting now seeing them all join the workplace and sort of how they know what they want and they go for it. And I, I love that I think we can learn from that a lot. Yeah, right. So, so you're you're a zillennial, is what you're saying. I've heard that word be used a little bit. That that kind of bridging generation. Zillennial, exactly. And I mean, I don't want to say anything about your age, but I'm guessing you don't consider yourself Gen Z. What no, generation no, no. would you consider yourself to be part of? Well, I I read about this thing last year, the geriatric millennials, and I identified quite strongly with that, which is the very oldest. Um, bracket of, of people in the millennial generation. So I was born in 81, which is like the very first year that people consider to be millennials. But I identified quite strongly with the geriatric millennials thing. Anyway, reason for asking was that I think a couple of, couple of um, little pieces of research that seem to have prompted quite a lot of chats and thoughts provoking in, in some, of the, some of the circles that I move in. And, and those are kind of these reports talking about what Gen Z actually wants out of the world of work. One report saying 80% of Gen Z want to move jobs, but actually they don't care that much about pay and they feel very unfulfilled and all they want to do is do things that contribute to, to society. And I, and I just find it fascinating how it feels like there's this real obsession with understanding what Gen Z want. And I think other generations kind of struggling a bit to understand and a little bit worried. So I was just wondering whether you could shed any light on that as someone who may be a little bit, little bit closer to that than maybe some of, some of others of us are. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Gen Z and kind of just younger people in general have, have been through a lot, you know, climate change and the impending doom associated with that has been around for pretty much our whole lifetimes. We spent pretty formative years during the pandemic and in lockdown. And I think the culmination of all those experiences, plus growing up on the internet and with social media has really made us question the status quo. And, you know, I think before there was kind of a standard idea of what a career path looks like and how you, you know, you, you do your job, you earn money what the power balance is between employers and employees. And I think Gen Z are just questioning all that and, and thinking about, you know, what's what's really the point in doing anything? Is it just about money or is there more to that in life? Which perhaps is, is quite different and surprising for, for some employers who, who aren't used to that way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you've got like four distinct generations kind of in the workforce right now, haven't you? You've got kind of boomers, Gen X, millennials and Gen Z. And I've sort of got this theory that you can maybe understand the motivations of one generation up or down, but you've basically got no hope if you're trying to go two generations below or above you in terms of how they're they're thinking. So maybe, maybe that goes to explain some of the kind of general bafflements at some of these ideas. But we need folks to help us all understand, I think, Gen Z, because it feels like everyone's really keen, I think. And it comes from a good place, I think. Folks, folks are they see that generation as the future of many companies, and I think they do want to understand them better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're the future of everything, aren't they? And they're also in a position now where the state of the world has kind of been created by things they had no influence over. So, so now they do have their influence and it's coming through. And I think it's really awesome to see you know, their way of approaching the world. Yeah, I actually want to write a piece on why people probably have more influence than they think. I need to get need to get around to that. But memes, I mean, memes are a, cent a central part of Gen Z culture, aren't they, would you say? Or I would say that memes are just like 90% of my personality, to be honest. Like, I think memes are just how we communicate these days. We don't know how to have normal conversations. <laughs> yeah, definitely a big part of our culture. Okay, all right. Well, um, we could probably talk for hours on this. We should probably, um, let's look ahead to the episode. So we are talking to Jason Sue from Radiant Advisors. 
talking all about China. What, what, what did you make of the conversation? Just uh, give listeners a little heads up before we get into it. I mean, it was a fascinating conversation. He's, he's such a well-informed, thoughtful person. And it really made me think more about some of the assumptions I make and the biases I apply when I think about different things. So he talked a lot about how we apply our Western lens when we think about China and, and the way the political system works there, the way the society works there, and ultimately how that affects the way you would invest there. But actually, we need to approach this from a different perspective because things do work differently there. And I think that's something we can learn a lot from, you know, not just for China, but really for everything that we do. So yeah, really, really interesting and somebody who really knows his stuff as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I, I think I don't quite sure I totally buy into some of the stuff he was saying, but he really, really made me think and question some of my instincts on some of these points, which I think is is what you want, isn't it? So um, let's, um, let's do this. Should we, should we do this? Let's do it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are talking China and investing in China. And delighted to say, joining us, we have a really special guest. And that's Jason Su, CIO, Radiant Global Advisors, and a professor at UCLA Anderson. Jason, welcome. Dan, glad to be here. It's great to have you here today, Jason. Could you tell us a bit about your role? So I am the co-founder and CIO at Radiant Global Advisors. On average day, my job is to read a lot, to think a lot, and talk to our researchers and build out models for understanding markets. Super. And we're going to get to a lot of the thinking and researching that you've done on, on investing in China in particular. We're going to get to all that in a second. And I, I followed a lot of your work for a while, by the way, so it's great to be talking to you. Jason, um, why don't you tell us one thing we should find on your... Uh, oh, God. Dan's just fanboying now. He's getting yeah, nervous. I, I, was just, I just got myself all in a, in, a, in a mix there, didn't I? Dear me. Jason, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Well, if the app allows, right, normally my background would be the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And in fact, it's the next generation, Captain Picard's bridge. I grew up as a big Star Trek fan. I actually went to get a degree in physics from Caltech because I thought that physics would be about, you know, space traveling and the wormholes and everything like that. And, and so I'm still at my heart of heart, a sci-fi geek. You're a massive Trekkie. Absolutely. Wow. Do you have like a favorite episode or favorite character or something? Like, how does it work? Captain Pagar, I love every episode. You know, it's sci-fi, but it's really more about how we all want to find out the mystery of the universe, find out the why and the origin of why we're here as a species. What are we meant to do? Yeah, it's got deeper layers to it. Absolutely. So diving straight into it, as Dan said, we're really interested to hear more from you about investing in China. And I think especially following, you know, recent Congress, falls and values of Chinese stocks, many people said that, you know, China was uninvestable, that sort of idea. But obviously, since then, there has been quite a big rally. I mean, how do you think things stand today? And, and how are you helping your investors think about allocating to China? Right at the time when people say something is uninvestable, and people say that about a lot of things, right? It's not just China. There's always some asset class that's done poorly, and then instantly it becomes uninvestable. And all it takes is some positive catalyst, and all of a sudden, you know, people are investing in it again. So I guess as an investor, the one thing I think about the most is 
what is actually priced into the market right now? Is the market greedy and therefore ignoring risk, ignoring bad news and only focus on irrational possibilities? Or is the market fearful and only focus on the bad and can't see that the worst will also come to pass and there's always sort of mean reversion between good and bad, right? And I would say right before the party congress, and actually really, you know, right, right after it, you know, the market was absolutely pricing in the worst, right? It was pricing in a war with the U.S., really a proxy war through Taiwan. It was pricing in China really closing down its borders as a double stand on a draconian COVID policy. And those were, yes, extreme left tail black swan events. It could happen. But it ignores the possibility of that these things are likely not to happen and that there are many positive things that could happen in place of it. So you think the market ran a bit too far with the bad news sort of at the time of the party congress? Absolutely. And it's really how media works, right? Like media is oftentimes color commentating on what's happening, right? So when market falls, media focuses on all the bad talking points, all the bad things it could share to explain why the market has fallen. And of course, if you're dealing with sort of less professional investors and the more retail-oriented, they look at the negative news as sort of a forecast of all future events and that you have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in the short run. And that's really how you get momentum, you know, positive and negative. And so really a lot of what happens is negative stock price returns leads to sort of an overemphasis on negative news and that negative news drives negative sentiments and really you sort of snowball from there. And do you think that's something that, I mean, as you said, it can happen everywhere, but do you think that impact is perhaps exacerbated in China or other emerging markets? I think absolutely true. I think, first of all, investors in the West, I would say we have a default suspicion regarding, first of all, countries in the emerging market basket and certainly countries that aren't like our own, right? Countries that don't have a democratically elected leadership, countries that have a very different culture and norm. And I would say in that regard, the default views regarding China tends to be a bit more negative. And so anytime you have sort of negative news, negative stock price performance, I think there are more than enough people who jump out and say, ah, see, my suspicion has, has proven out correct. We just can't invest in, in a country that doesn't have the same sort of democratic society that we do, that has a culture that perhaps, you know, will, will cause it to be less innovative, less creative, so on and so forth. So I think a lot of default biases do come out. And I think in, in the case of EM and, and more specifically China, any negative news tends to sort of cascade toward the uninvestable sentiment very quickly. So with that in mind, let's say you're talking to an asset owner. How do you help them think through how they should sort of allocate to China. And I guess there's context for that. A lot of the asset owners we work with, you know, UK asset owners, they might have a small allocation to say emerging markets. Obviously, that has some China in it, but there's obviously various ways you could sort of approach it. So how do you think about it? Do you look at carving it out? Do you look at the emerging markets piece? How do you see it? So most people, when they ask us China, they do so. They like you say, indirectly through the broader emerging market basket. If you look at the benchmark exposure, right? So when you, when you buy any active manager, passive manager who's benchmarked to MSCI yet, general, you would have quite a bit of China. Now, it's what we call offshore China. Basically, it, it, these are big Chinese companies that have shares listed in the U.S. as ADRs, have shares listed in Hong Kong H shares. So those historically have been easier to access for global investors. And they represent oftentimes more of the tech names because those are more familiar for, I think, Westerners. And it's actually quite large. If you look at China as a fraction of EM basket, often it stands at around 
30 to 40%, depending on how well it's done recently. It could be much larger or a little bit smaller. And so people do have meaningful China exposure to their portfolios. So it's important to think about, do you want that? Are you comfortable with it? In what kind of portfolio context sense does it make? And also, is that the right exposure to China? So I'll kind of start with, you know, is that the right exposure to China? And that what's missing sort of in the MSCI's definition of China is what we call the onshore, sometimes referred to as the A-shares. And A-shares really have a much more broadly exposure to China as a whole in that, you know, all the key sectors are represented. Tech is really only about, you know, 11, 12%. Rather than if you look on the offshore, it's almost all of China is this tech, right? So the Alibaba is the 10 cents. So depending on whether you're buying offshore China, that's a little easier for us to buy, or the onshore China, you're going to have very, very different exposures, very, very different diversification. My offshore stuff tends to be very correlated with NASDAQ because these big tech names trade like tech names in the U.S., and onshore China tends to be far less correlated, about 0.3 in correlation, just because they respond to very different macro policies and just the natural industry diversification is very different. So I think a lot of people really should go back to the basics, just understand how is China being decided major benchmarks? What is onshore? What is offshore? What are the different axes you're actually buying? I mean, I think a lot of people probably aren't really aware that there is this difference between offshore and onshore and that their emerging market portfolio is concentrated in one area. Could you tell us a bit more about kind of how people would go about accessing one versus the other? So by and large, if you look at standalone China product that's got a little bit of track record with a passive active, it's going to be mostly the offshore. And the reason for that is access rule has changed dramatically over, say, the last five years. Before, it was difficult for foreigners, foreign asset managers to set up a fund to invest onshore. So most of those sort of interesting stocks you've never heard of, you just can't buy them. And so historically, most funds were set up to buy stuff that's already listed in the U.S. and Hong Kong that's fairly easy to buy. So you bought a lot of the Alibaba's and they've done well, right? And not because that was sort of an interesting sector allocation call, but because NASDAQ has done so well, anything that's correlated with it has done really, really well. But really, you're not getting a lot of the interesting growth stories, kind of smaller mid-cap growth stories onshore in China that you would need to by using the A shares. Over time, I think the last few years, people are starting to recognize that, like if you just buy the offshore stuff, first of all, it did horribly because it's so correlated to NASDAQ when NASDAQ crashed, so did all the Chinese tech shares. And second of all, these shares, just because they're using a very unique, innovative chassis, the SEC is challenging the legality of it, it's trying to audit you know, and look through the underlying, and the Chinese regulators are challenging these chassis that sort of violates their currency control and foreign ownership issues. And then that's really gotten people to think about, okay, or what is sort of the better way, the safer way to access China? And people started to think about going directly onshore. And China at that time, it's relaxed the rule for access as well. So today, a lot of the new products, and if you listen to the big investment banks and their asset allocation calls, most of them are saying, look, for diversification purposes, go with the onshore issues, you're gonna access the real China, you're going to access more interesting names that you've not heard of, and it's really going to give you better diversification. Yeah, and is that because there was sort of a restriction, wasn't there, for a while on on foreigners buying that? Is that relaxed now, or is it still the case you need to get allocations in those processes? That's largely relaxed. So, Dan, what you're referring to is called the QFI quota. It used to be you got to be a really, really large asset owner to be granted the ability to access the interesting stocks on short. Now, through what they call the Hong Kong Connect program, 
as long as you're trading with a reputable broker, they would have the ability to set up accounts for you in Hong Kong and then let you trade directly into China. Uh, so, you know, a lot of ETFs and mutual funds today have the ability to access onshore China easily. And do you think kind of emerging market indices, say your MSCI ones, have they been updated to reflect this as well? Or are they still mainly referencing the offshore type? For MSCI, I think they wish they could just sort of turn a switch and say, all right, now most of your China exposure should be onshore because that's really the bulk of the market capitalization and that's really going to give you a better diversification. Unfortunately, they have the legacy issue. They started with almost entirely offshore. And so it's a glide path, right? It's a process where they got to take all their clients from over here and gradually migrate over here. So you hear about these complicated rules called inclusion rules. You know, they're going to include more and more of the A shares into the MSCI index. And that's what they're referring to. They're trying to find a glide path to get people from concentrated offshore tech names into much more uh, kind of diversified onshore names. Yeah, it sounds sort of awfully clunky when you think about it, doesn't it? I guess it's very easy to think about these indices as kind of just, you know, a really broad representation of emerging markets. But the more you unpack it, it's not, it's not perfect, I guess. And, and also, I suppose part of the issue is a lot of asset owners, you know, the EM part is quite a small satellite allocation. And so then you end up saying, well, you've got China, which is this huge market by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just a huge market. And yet it's just one part of a satellite part of, an investor's portfolio. And I guess the question is, is that kind of right from a blank sheet of paper perspective? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, right, again, obviously, when we're investing, we're thinking of buying global growth there. So you're thinking about, well, who's contributing to global growth and who can grow faster? If you just start with, all right, well, who's driving growth? You can think of GDP growth and you think of corporate earnings growth. It really comes down to you got US on the one end and you got China on the other end. Everyone else just by relative sizing, sort of pales, right? So today, I think most people have the U.S. weight right as a dominant portion of your equities portfolio. But then I think most people don't have China, right? If you look at sort of just the onshore China, it's actually less than 4%, meaning you probably have more weight in your portfolio in Apple versus what you got in China. You can imagine probably half of Apple's market capitalization comes either from the low-cost manufacturing capability allowing to make more profits by manufacturing in China or selling Apple in China, right? So you know something doesn't quite match up, right? If China is sort of smaller than a single stock whose value is so critically dependent on China. So I would say, you know, by market capitalization, by GDP, by corporate earnings growth, China should probably be the second largest equity allocation as a country within your portfolio. And you might say, oh, but China is more volatile. And, and that's true from absolute volatility perspective. But what is also true is that volatility is actually very diversifying, right? It's lowly correlated with the U.S. And it's precisely that low correlation that causes us to get nervous about China. And then, in fact, you should always think of you know, the lack of familiarity, the fact that it's just so different politically, and that it's a different phase in its growth cycle. That's what drives the low correlation, right? If China was exactly like the U.S. does the same thing, have the same industry exposure, it wouldn't be as interesting as a diversifier. So one of the things you mentioned were these chassis that are getting a lot more regulatory scrutiny at the moment. And yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that and, and perhaps how, how some of the investors we work with might be exposed to these issues? Yeah, so a number of kind of the famed Chinese companies, so Alibaba is probably a prime candidate, saw a listing not onshore in China, but really offshore in the U.S. And there are a variety of reasons, one of which most people are probably surprised by is 
Alibaba could not get approval to be listed in China, and it sought listing in Hong Kong and couldn't get approval for that because at the time it just wasn't viewed as having a you know sustained profitability, and also it had sort of questionable governance, right? You, you had a small shareholder in Jack Ma who really could veto and override everything. So from a governance perspective, it sort of didn't actually comply with what kind of Shanghai Stock Exchange or the Hong Kong Stock Exchange wanted. But there was one other thing, which was, you know, Alibaba had actually gotten a lot of foreign capital early on during the VC stage. And there's foreign ownership restrictions that would also be challenging uh, if Alibaba listed in China. There'd just be too many foreigners who, who held the company. And one additional thing is, of course, a lot of the investors in Alibaba, especially its founding core of Chinese nationals, wanted to have liquidity in New US dollar, renminbi. So the scheme that the investment bank cooked up was to have Alibaba, first of all, register a shell company uh, in the Caymans. And so it's called a variable interest entity. So the company actually lists is this Cayman entity, right? not the Alibaba onshore. So what happens is the Cayman entity simply says, we actually own all the IP, you know, be it trademark, be it the underlying technology. So Alibaba onshore has to send all its profits to the offshore entity. So in a way, you know, Alibaba onshore is almost a nonprofit, right? Because all of its profit gets repatriated to this offshore Cayman entity. And this offshore Cayman entity is one list, right? That's how shareholders are able to sort of get liquidity in the dollars and how new investors could invest in this non-Chinese company that has a lot of interest from China. Clearly, you can see how the Chinese authorities says, hey, look, this is just a way to bypass our currency control and our foreign ownership control. So we, we got issues with that. And of course, the SEC, when they look through, go, how solid are your contracts? And can we audit these underlying contracts, the underlying cash flow? And this is always been challenging. And for a long time, when China was doing well, when Alibaba share price was making new highs, people didn't care. Now people care and they realize what a black swan tail event that they're running into, right? Both regulators being unhappy with this chassis. Yeah, I always think it seems to be one of those few things that both the US and China administration seem to agree upon. And so it seems somewhat dangerous to be essentially caught in the middle there as an investor. But a lot of asset owners just will be, because if anyone who owns Alibaba in the portfolio, that is basically how you own it, right? Through the VIE, that's effectively a shell company listed in the US with questionable ownership rights to the actual economics of Alibaba in China. And do you think people are just oblivious of that risk or they think it's priced in? And this is when you know markets go in cycles of optimism and pessimism, because clearly when the investment bank brought the deal to the market, right, this is all disclosed, right? You read the perspectives and it clearly tells you what's happening there. But of course, people tell you, oh, you know, it'll never be an issue. The Chinese regulators would want to encourage more listing in the U.S. and certainly wouldn't do anything to hurt international investors and, and therefore sully its own reputation and hurt the ability to be more globally connected. And of course, the American regulator understands what's going on. And everyone just assumed that was going to be a non-issue because the stock was such a important stock for anyone who wants to own China. And of course, you know, when things turn south and stock price falls, now all of a sudden this risk is, is made known. And now people are probably far more pessimistic about the risk than the actual risk that exists. And I would say, you know, again, people always knew what was there. Just wanting to believe if it's an actual risk or not, that is very sentiment driven. I don't think there's a lot of rationality so far that's been applied to China shares. Yeah. You can't put it into a model and get percentage chance to two decimal places out of the chance of it happening. Shock. 
Okay, let's pivot there a little bit then, shall we, and get on to maybe one of the sort of really big questions at the heart of investing in China, I guess, and that's political risk, which has a few different, I think, areas to it. But maybe the place to start, I suppose if we think back to, I think it was last year, even before the Communist Party Congress, there was a bit of political interference, particularly in the e-learning sectors and some of the tech sectors, which caused a really, really steep kind of sell-off in, in those sort of areas. So I suppose the question there is, is it always inherent investing in China that you're running the risk the Chinese government suddenly says one day, effectively decides to put your sector out of business or nationalize that sector. Is that always a risk that investors basically run? Yeah, so I would say it's always a risk, not just in China, but more broadly in EM. If you just look in EM, across the board, all of the major economies in EM are interventionists. If you look at the policy, the interventions on the currency side, trade protection, industry subsidy, and generally there's just a degree of over-regulation, very experimental in regulation, and you see a lot of this two-step forward, one-step back as policymakers either experiment with things or there's a shift in government, a change in policy attitude. And China, this is no different, right? It is, I would say, by comparison to perhaps some of the other component countries within, yeah, maybe even a rather outstanding citizen. But certainly, I think all of us looking at EM have to understand that First of all, the regulators in EM are far less sophisticated than the regulators you find in the West, right? In the UK, in the US, because they haven't had markets for that long, right? They've only imported capitalism, imported free markets. And that's kind of the last three decade thing, right? That, that hasn't been there for 100 years. And if you look at their regulations, it's very experimental. They hack together, you know, stuff that they can copy from the US, from Japan, from Taiwan. Sometimes if you actually read the document, it's internally inconsistent and they sort of take time to figure out where things don't make sense and how to make it make sense. So all that is just part and parcel investing in EM, investing in China. And so I would say anyone who looks at risk and say, hey, you know, that is a risk I can't bear. Well, then China is probably not for you and EM investing is probably not for you. But for most investors, I think probably the right question is, given that these idiosyncratic shocks are going to be present in the market, how should I invest, right? How big of a discount, right? So you certainly don't want to overpay. You don't want to pay top top prices, high valuation multiple for markets that have these idiosyncratic risks. And you also probably don't want to be very concentrated, right? There's no amount of information you could have that would help you perfectly predict that e-learning was going to be a sector that gets, you know, sideways with the government. You probably want to be a lot more diversified than you normally would want to. And you probably do need a very good active manager who at least could tell you, like from a policy perspective, you know, which sector might be more at risk, which sector might have tailwind, rather than sort of passively following the market. Right? If you passively follow the market, you're going to get suckered into one bubble after another. And oftentimes the government comes in at the height of the bubble to really stop something from going even more crazy. And so I'd say that speaks to you got to be more diversified and you probably got to be much more localized in terms of actively managing the portfolio. And related to that, then, I guess, do you think that Western investors generally should or need to understand President Xi better? Do you think is that something that Western investors ought to have a grasp of or is that one step sort of too much? You know, I think to invest in China, probably that is the one thing you've got to develop a view on, right? Because just take the extreme, right? the two bookends. Right now, he could either be a Putin already, or he could be a very savvy ruler, monarch, autocrat, however you want to call it. Now, if he's sort of a savvy, strategic monarch, then chances are good. You know, China will continue to grow and then could grow quite successfully, right? You know, sort of the, the Singapore, you know, experience. If he's 
more like a Putin, right? Then the risk is enormously high and you better get paid a lot for it. And so I think people have to look at the data and make up their mind as to, is she more this end of the spectrum or more this end of the spectrum? What's your view on where she is on the spectrum? You don't want to just listen to what the man say. You want to look at what he's done, right? So first and foremost, President Xi Jinping's sort of rise to power really started with a very distinguished track record in the Fujian area, which is kind of the coastal area of China that first started doing trade with Taiwan. And his initial sort of responsibility was to attract businessmen from Taiwan to go set up factories and train workers and increase employment, increase GDP. And he's actually done a really successful job there. So there's not a part of him that says, oh, you know, capitalism is horrible. Free market is horrible. You know, that's bad for the country's development, right? In fact, he was one of the earlier sort of proponents, managers who sort of brought success to China because he had done such a good job attracting foreign investment, particularly from, from Taiwan, right? And so I think to sort of pin him down as an ideologue who distrusts market, wants communism, socialism, I think that's probably more of us trying to force an interpretation on him than anything else. And also, if you sort of look at what he's done, right, he's gotten to where he got to. He's basically outflanked his entire party. Right? He's outmaneuvered everyone at every turn. First of all, ascending to power. And once he ascended to power, consolidating power, removing obstacles, and then ultimately winning the third term and likely will be in term four and perhaps five. He surprised everyone, right? So this is a man who's exceedingly patient. And of course, you don't do that alone, right? You do that with a strong team. And so anyone who says, oh, you know, she is now surrounded by a bunch of yes men who are not competent, who are not capable. Well, no, he's surrounded by people who's been with him, that he's trusted, that's kind of been his core team, and that's helped him outmaneuver everyone. So I think there's no evidence that he's surrounded by people who are not competent, who are not very good, and there's no evidence that he's a rash person. He didn't come to power by killing a bunch of people, right? He came to power really through the political process that's part of the, the party mechanism and then outsmarting, outflanking everyone. So he's exceedingly patient, exceedingly rational, and have tremendous, I would say, self-discipline and control. And again, you know, China is always going to be a one-party state, and that one party has a strong leader. That's not going to change. So the best the West can hope for is you get a competent and rational leader. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like people in the West often see perhaps a disproportionate political risk in China because the way of doing things is different. But I'm, I'm pretty sure we can't say, looking at all our previous leaders in the West, that we always have rational, competent leaders, even if they are democratically elected. I mean, I wonder if we're kind of, it's as you said, just because China's different, the culture's different, the way the political system works is different. We're just applying too many biases as Westerners, as Western investors that are perhaps, you know, skewing our ability to do our jobs properly. Look, I mean, I think there is a romanticism in China about having that wise, capable leader, right? There are thousands of years of history isn't about electing a great king, right? It's about a great king being sort of birthed <laughs> into royalty and, and take the country forward. So in some ways, we probably imagine a lot more unhappiness than there actually is. I think there's, make no mistake about it, she is a populist leader. There are a lot of intellectuals who don't like him, Clearly, you know, a lot of intellectuals who sort of studied abroad, who's probably been heavily influenced by the West, you know, would say, look, you know, China should evolve to be more like 
the U.S., maybe more like the U.K., right? Have a democratically elected leader and have competing parties. But I would say, you know, that doesn't extend very far down beyond the elites, right? Most people in China, you know, having a monarchy seems just fine and it's what they're used to. And it's all this hope for, hey, you know, can we just get a, a better monarch, right? Who is more capable, who's more efficient. So I think she's thus far actually with his own people has been very popular. And he says all the right things, right? He says about common prosperity. When he says common prosperity, right? He's saying, hey, you know, China's gotten rich. And my job is to make sure that wealth is more evenly shared so that we don't have very skewed wealth distribution. Clearly, the elite that's made a lot of money will be frightened by that. And those that didn't participate in the prosperity are very happy by that. And there's a lot more people on the other end of the prosperity line. So I would say don't underestimate how popular she is. I think West tries to sort of imagine that its distrust and its discomfort with Xi is broadly shared by everyone in China as well. And I don't think that's true. Yeah, it's interesting what you say. I mean, I, I always try and wonder, like in the broader sort of media consciousness, certainly in the UK, that the sort of the profile that a leader like President Xi actually has in the UK, I think is relatively small. I mean, I think you'd struggle to get hold of stuff that he said over any time scale, like original footage of him talking, even translated. I guess we just received the sort of narrative that the media wants to put onto things. And I felt until last year, there was, wasn't really much. It felt like last year, the media in the UK tried to get a bit more under the skin of, of how he thought and what he was like. But obviously, he's been in power for an awfully long time before we're even getting to that point. So relative to, say, President Biden or President Trump in the US, where there's clearly a huge focus, and I think a lot of people in the UK would feel they have a decent grasp of what those presidents are about. It's just completely different. Absolutely true. And you have to say he's probably uh, more cautious than the prior Chinese leaders. This is also true. You know, He holds his cards pretty tight. That's why he's been able to surprise everyone every turn, right? I think, you know, people were very surprised at the opening up of China immediately after the Party Congress, right? They thought, hey, you know, generally leaders and especially Asian leaders, right, face saving is very important. You know, it's sort of almost an ego-driven decision-making, right? President Xi says dynamic zero COVID, it means hell or high water, he's going to double down on that. And when people start protesting in the street, the view was, you know, any autocratic leader, any monarch could crush protests, especially immediately after re-election, right? Because it would be such an embarrassment otherwise. But no, he took the off-ramp and said, okay, you know, this is really a policy that's been implemented poorly at the local level. It's really the corruption between local bureaucrats and testing equipment makers, testing labs. We're going to stop this, this madness, this is draining the national treasury. He took the off-ramp, lay off the blame and happily go the other way, right? So I think people were completely surprised by that, right? So what they thought was someone who, out of ego, out of pettiness, is pursuing a failed policy, they got it wrong again. So I would say we really know very little about him, about the only thing we can tell from what he's done is he's savvy. He's found ways out of difficult situations, and he doesn't seem to be someone who's surrounded by incompetent people, and he doesn't seem to make sort of rash emotional decisions. Just quickly, have you traveled to China since the zero COVID was relaxed then? Presumably you weren't able to for a while there, or what was the deal? So I will be in a month or so. I will be first in Taiwan and then mainland China for most of March and April. Last year, I was in Taiwan around the Pelosi visit to China, to Taiwan, and that hugely irritated China. And then, of course, year prior, I was actually in China for about five months, visiting about 22 cities to get a sense of the real estate trouble that was occurring at the time. Could you tell us a bit more about what happened with the real estate market and how that might have affected some of the investors in the UK? 
So about once every two years, the world predicts that China will have a Japanese-type real estate meltdown, and it'll be the undoing of China. And it's precisely because the world talks about it so much that Beijing, more than anything else, has a paranoia about it actually happening. Right? If you go to Beijing, you'll find a number of think tanks whose job is to really advise Beijing on how to handle real estate. So I would say kind of the first immediate takeaway is real estate in China is a social problem. It is not a financial problem because the government is so paranoid about leverage in the real estate sector. It's seen in the U.S. global financial crisis. It's seen the Japanese real estate collapse. And so it knows the only thing that you need to get right to avoid a real estate crash is to make sure that there isn't a lot of leverage in the sector. So what the government immediately did was to, first of all, make sure that household, if they want to borrow to buy real estate, they got to put a lot of down payment and the bank has to like overqualify them, right? You got to have a strong cash flow to pay mortgage. And to avoid speculation, households in China are only allowed to buy one apartment. And in fact, it's such a common practice for people to want to get around that rule that couples would actually get a divorce. So one household becomes two so they can go buy another apartment so they can pass it down to their son or daughter in the future. And so you know, the government's really gone on its way to make it hard for people to speculate in real estate. And certainly if you're buying a second real estate, usually there's no mortgage loan available. And so a lot of people do buy on cash. So our experience of seeing ultra high net worth Chinese coming into your neighborhood and buying things on cash, that doesn't just happen outside of China. That happens in China as well. So the entire ownership is actually not very leverage, right? Households, if they own lots of real estate, they often buy it on cash. And so, yes, real estate is really expensive in China, unreasonably expensive given the national income, the per capita GDP. So it's painful for young people who haven't bought yet, but it is not a financial problem. It's much more social problem for people who can't afford to buy real estate. Now, of course, when we talked about China Evergrande and kind of real estate developers and all the high yield bonds that people might have bought in Hong Kong, that went sour. That's sort of a slightly different story. So first of all, the real estate developers sector, it's a meaningful sector, but by no means this is sort of a dominant sector, even when you look at kind of the broad index exposure. And not all the developers are highly geared up. You know, the most geared up was China Evergrande. And in fact, the government has sort of warned all the developers, hey, look, you can't borrow a lot and hoard land and don't build products. You got to bring products to market, reduce pricing pressure. But a lot of developers at the time, they were less about developing. They're more about getting in cahoot with local governments, buy up land, store land, and try to speculate and, and bid up land prices before bringing on sort of expensive product to market. And that really kind of irritated the government because the government already was concerned with the price running away and the lack of supply to adjust the demand. So, you know, government went pretty hard at developers that weren't selling apartments, taking cash in to reduce their leverage ratio. And China Evergrande, the fact that it ultimately collapsed under its own weight. It wasn't because it owned properties that were worthless, it has stupid projects that it couldn't sell. It had premium, high-quality projects in sort of premium locations. It just couldn't complete them because it wasn't building them fast enough and the bank refused to finance them anymore. And so the result of which is their debt goes bad and the project gets transferred and you know debt gets transferred to a new developer with a stronger balance sheet. So actually, domestically in China, most of the financial institutions, most people who bought the high-yield debt, were generally made whole because these projects have valuable underlying collateral. The foreigners who took losses were the ones who bought the Hong Kong debt that had no collateral. 
right? So when the collateral was actually eventually transferred, you know, they were left holding the bag. And that was because they didn't understand that all the hard assets already were pledged to local banks and kind of at the corporate level that was issuing debt in Hong Kong just didn't have any, have any hard collateral to, to back the debt anymore. So again, this is where investors didn't understand what they're doing and were surprised. Yeah, so it's another lesson in the vehicles and the listing, the technicalities of where it's listed and what kind of hard assets you have You have sort of backing. So, so you're seeing that as a kind of individual story around actually the structures of that company rather than a story around a real estate crisis kind of a story. You're, you're sort of seeing it more as a healthy washout, if anything, of a company that just went bad. Yeah. You know, again, when people say, oh, look, you know, look at all these apartments in China that had no one living in it. We use a very Western-centric way to think about real estate investing in China, right? Because for most Western investors, you buy real estate, you collect rent, and the rent covers your taxes and mortgage, and you get a residual from that, and that becomes kind of your income from real estate investing. And so if mortgage rate is 6% and your rental rate is 1%, clearly that means prices are not right and something really bad is going to happen. So when we look at China, we go, yeah, your mortgage rate is 6.5%, and then rental yield is 1%. This is, is going to go badly. But in China, people don't buy real estate to earn a rental income. Uh, most of them store it like a store value, like how some people might buy gold. And uh, you know, when I'm in China and you know, I hold some real estate in China and because I don't live in them, I rent them out. And people are quite surprised. They think, are you in financial trouble? Why don't you rent your home out to strangers for money? And so that's sort of the, a very different relationship people have with the apartments that they own. It's just something you own. Maybe your kid from Canada, from the UK will come back and live in it. Maybe you can pass it down. But most of them don't depend on that as a income generating property. So earlier, you were talking a bit about how the US and China drive a lot of growth in the world. But I guess the question for investors is, does that economic growth actually get rewarded in share prices? Well, the surprising fact, if you look at my paper in the Journal of Portfolio Management, is that most countries have rapid GDP growth, don't translate that GDP growth into corporate earnings growth. And in fact, when we look at data, really, you need two key ingredients to make that translation work. Is One, you have to have a vibrant venture capital market, right? Because someone has to incubate an entrepreneur and give him capital and help him grow big enough so he can list, right? Otherwise, Panda Express would still just be one little Chinese fast food company, right? Not the world's biggest Chinese fast food company. So you need a vibrant VC market. And of course, you also need a very liquid secondary market that allows the entrepreneur and his investors to unlock liquidity. And as it turns out, these conditions generally don't exist, certainly not in emerging markets. China is unique in that it's got the world's second largest and most active venture capital market. That doesn't exist by and large for any of the other EM economy. And then the second part is China has the world's second most liquid and second largest listed equity market. And again, that doesn't exist for many of the other economies in the EM basket because in the rest of the EM, oftentimes the listing rules are so bureaucratic, the red tape is so difficult to overcome, and the cost of obtaining listing is so high that only the big sale enterprise lists. Right? Small companies just can't overcome those difficulties and use the listed market as a way to source capital. So the fact that U.S. has been able to translate its GDP growth into corporate earnings growth and China has been able to do that, that's actually more of the outlier than the norm. Because at the end of the day, what you're buying is you're not buying a slice of GDP. You're buying a slice of GDP that can find its way to be listed so that investors could participate. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I guess a related question is, 
should economic growth even be rewarded in share prices? You know, is it better for it to be passed on to individuals and society so they have a better quality of life rather than perhaps a few people that have access to the shares of these companies? What do you think? Well, as it turns out, having a listed market to risk share and to risk share reward share is the most efficient way for that to be broadly shared by society. Now, of course, you know, it's not ubiquitously true. It's generally true for societies that have pension that invest in markets, right? Because that's how really all of us, as we pay into the national pension system, pay into the corporate pension system, that our capital then participate in kind of the fruit of the entrepreneurs, of the employees that work with them to build great companies. Because if you didn't have access to those talent through the listed market, very few of us would be able to find an entrepreneur and or be lucky enough to have a relative that becomes a great entrepreneur and lend him money and participate in sort of the value that he creates. So actually, the listed mechanism, as it turns out, is from a social improvement to sort of social equality. This is actually quite critical. That's a really interesting point. I've never heard it put like that before, but there's some interesting reflections there, I think, for the UK in terms of where we're at, in terms of where our pension system has gone and what that means for listed markets and the sharing of that prosperity. Definitely. Yeah, it feels quite counterintuitive, doesn't it, compared to some of the headlines you see about share prices and perhaps you don't think that comes back via pensions and that kind of thing to benefit wider society. And also, if you think about it, right, for an entrepreneur who didn't have the good luck of growing up in a wealthy family right, with wealthy uncles, how is he going to build a great business if there isn't a venture capital market that says, hey, I can eventually take you IPO and sell your shares in a public market and I could get wealthy as an investor. Right? Without that mechanism, most entrepreneurs who didn't come from a wealthy family could never get funding. Right? And so it's not just that once it lists, you know, public pension can participate in great companies. It's that even giving someone a chance to build a great company if he didn't have the right last name, didn't have the right parents, right? That's not possible if you, again, don't have this mechanism. Jason, moving on to another really crucial issue, I think, and that's around social risks. And I guess that's a risk that a lot of folks are really worried about, which is the persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China, which is obviously a really big area. And I, and I guess part of what we've said already is there is this tendency among Westerners to sort of perhaps over perceive some of the riskiness, but this surely is a real a real issue and a real thing. So how would you sort of help investors think about their way around that issue? Absolutely. The issue and its impact kind of on China's stability or on its economics or its corporate earnings is small. It's very, very small. But from an ESG perspective, right, because I think today most investors, and I think correctly, you know, not only do we want our capital to produce a return, right? Not only do we want our capital to help good companies and good management team to build great products, we also want our capital to support our values, right? And so I think when we put a, the ESG lens on it, I think the, the Uyghur issue becomes a far larger issue when you think about investing in China. And so I would say kind of the best analogy that I can apply there is this situation is probably very similar to the Palestinian issue, right? the occupation in Palestine that the world's sort of you know, struggling with and inflares that, right? The problems run so deep, and I would say the hatred from both toward each other runs so deep that I think the Uyghur issue is not something that can get resolved, right? And so as an investor, I just don't see you know, there's anything we can do from either withholding capital or from additional sanction that will change that situation. Because if we can, we'll be fixing many, many other global situations elsewhere. 
So as an investor, I think you're going to have to look at that and say, look, am I going to eliminate all of China out of my portfolio on this one issue? And then I want to maybe now speak broader on ESG, which is from an ESG perspective, China's clearly got some very significant deficiencies, right? There's no beating around the bush around that. And I think as an investor, we, we want to ask ourselves, when we think about ESG, is it about telling China that China is not good enough today? Because if that's the case, right, we should mostly just invest with you know, Sweden <laughs> and the Netherlands. Or is this about, you know, how do we signal China the kind of behavior, the kind of deficiency that we want China to work on so that they could get more global capital and can get larger weights within global indexes and all of which you know, helps signal China's strength and the arrival of China on the world stage and so on and so forth, something that the Beijing leadership cares about. I think if it's about rewarding them for doing more and doing the right thing, perhaps instead of scoring based on levels, right? If you score based on levels, there's huge deficiencies. You want to score based on improvements, right? Can they make progress? And in that regard, you know, China's probably made better progress in terms of at least a green initiative than most of the world. And that's a good outcome, right? We want China to keep making those changes because they're right now one of the biggest polluters along with many other emerging economies. If they can change their behaviors, that there's actually far better payoff for the rest of the world. And so I think and when it comes to sort of ESG and these sort of values-based investment criteria, we might want to ignore the level, but look at improvements. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're talking about some kind of tilting approach, which kind of looks to reward the outperformers, the overachievers in certain areas and underweight the laggards rather than approach, which just says screen out, you know, essentially whole sectors, but potentially even some people might argue screen out China completely, you'd argue more of a tilting up, waiting down, waiting thing. Yeah. And then really, I mean, in some ways, it's it's like activist investing, right? Uh, what you want is not to just eliminate companies that doesn't sort of jive with your value system. What you want is you want to get really actively involved and sort of help guide them so you get a better outcome for both. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because I mean, if I was designing my ideal portfolio, I would ideally not be funding any sort of human suffering. But it's how do you do that in practice? Do you have to go through every single supply chain? You know, it's probably going to be companies who are US-based as well that have exposure within their supply chains to some of this persecution of the Ouija Muslims. I mean, is there any way you can avoid having exposure to these risks? Or do you think that the kind of activist investor approach is, is the better way to address it? So if you want to sort of eliminate things that really are directly funding any kind of exploitation, again, you know, Xinjiang is a very, very small part of China's economy. And it is a very poor region, right? So to imagine that, oh, somehow if you sort of eliminate anything that's attached to Xinjiang and more specifically to Uyghur, you would eliminate a lot of Chinese companies, right? That would almost be counterintuitive, right? Because if Xinjiang was that big of a Chinese economy and Chinese economy is growing so quickly and bringing about so much prosperity, really the Xinjiang issue probably would have gone away a long time ago. So it's precisely because it's really poor, really underdeveloped, really hasn't participated in China's growth. That is just so insignificant. So if you're looking to say, oh, you know, I only want the part of China's growth that has nothing to do with Xinjiang, you actually aren't going to screen out very much. Probably the bigger issue is, you know, why, why isn't Xinjiang? How do you find a path for Xinjiang to be a much bigger part of China's growth, right? To be a much bigger part of that, you know, rebalance to a common prosperity. So right now, because it is so insignificant, right? If you're looking to screen out anything that's attached to it, you're not going to screen out much of anything. That's really interesting. 
Just switching tactics just slightly again, Jason, because we're running short on time and I want to make sure we fit in the final question. So just thinking about geopolitics, basically, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, you've already brought up Taiwan a couple of times. I know I think you've got some family ties there as well, but that's a common sort of latent fear, I guess, that investors have, that there could be some kind of a conflict across the Taiwan Strait and that there could be some kind of huge sanctions against Chinese companies that could really affect investors. Again, I mean, I suppose you could probably talk on this for hours, but how would you start to think about that and help people think their way through it? So last year, you can call that the election year for both Taiwan and for President Xi. And a lot of what President Xi Jinping said was really more communicating to his domestic audience to look really strong, right? To be giving U.S. the middle finger over the Taiwan issue because he needed the support from military, right? He needed to be that strong leader who could stare down the Americans. And that was critical for him to basically wrap up, you know, Term number three. Immediately afterward, right, these are reached out to Europe, orchestrated for the German chancellors to come and visit EU, sort of following suit. And then, you know, she's even offering some olive branch to the US. So he's very active diplomatically, you know, going to the Middle East, you know, into a region where relationship with the US is at probably its worst point and China's trying to get in. So he's very savvy politically, trying to see where he can push and probably. The most unwise and rational thing would be, you know, now that he is, in fact, fully in charge, right, to start a proxy war with the U.S. through Taiwan, right? Because it's not something he can win. It's certainly not something he can win without enormous cost, right? Basically, if you look at what happened to Russia, it'll be exactly the same thing, right? Be, you know, and then you know, China is much more integrated with the entire world, right? If the entire world decided to not buy from China and sanction China, you know, China's going to be in a world of hurt and it'll probably immediately destabilize Xi Jinping's administration, right? If you are the emperor for the next 10, 20 years, right? Why start something now to destabilize your regime when you work so hard, so carefully, so patiently to get there, right? It's just completely irrational, right? And there's no data point to support that he is a impatient, irrational, rash person that will wake up on the wrong side of better press the red button. So I think, again, probably completely overblown because we have an imagery of someone who is sort of irrational ideologue rather than what is true, which is a very, very patient, very, very rational person in charge. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we have so many preconceptions about political systems that are different to ours, but actually makes a lot of sense having somebody whose time horizon is more aligned with yours compared to, you know, our sort of five-year leader cycles. So yeah, this has definitely been such an interesting conversation and given me so much food for thought, especially around some of the biases that we have here in the West. It'd be great to know sort of what's one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this conversation we've had today? Probably the one thing that I most often remind people is trying to kind of learn about China from the popular press is like, I guess this is more American analogy, right? It's like trying to learn about President Biden from watching Fox News. In the popular press, there are just a lot of negative biases about China, and that'll constantly be replayed and probably overemphasized. So really, for investors, go and experience China. Go and sort of talk to people who lived in China, build a career, build a business there. Again, they're not going to be entirely correct. They'll have their own biases, but we'll triangulate the truth a little bit better. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, that's really come through, I think, in what you said. Yeah, I totally get that. And Jason, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? The most underappreciated thing about investing is people say, oh, it's market is super efficient. I would say that's probably not even accurate. It's more about market in the short run can be so inefficient, so random. 
And most of us just don't have the capital or the conviction to stay the course, given how sort of random and, and irrational markets can be. And so I would say, you know, it's not just efficient market that can cause investors to not have an edge when investing. Irrational, crazy markets would do exactly the same thing, right? So that's probably the one thing that's underappreciated, which is markets are probably more irrational and more random than you imagine. But even given that, the ability to profit from it is not terribly high. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've not heard it put that way before, but that's a really nice thought. And do you have any recommendations for books or podcasts, obviously your own newsletter as well that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I'm obviously going to steal this opportunity to suggest readers and audience of your podcast to find me on LinkedIn and subscribe to my newsletter, The Bridge. But clearly, your podcast is a fantastic one. You have so many great speakers and participants that come on your show. It's absolutely awesome. And I would say, you know, goodies about oldies. It's probably never wrong, never a bad idea to follow Munger and Buffett because they say the same thing over and over again. But those are such simple wisdom and truth that hearing them over and over again is probably never a bad idea. Are they on LinkedIn as well or not? They are not, but they get reshared on LinkedIn very constantly. <laughs> yeah. And I do have a lot of time for your, you're a big LinkedIn user, aren't you? You write a lot on there, a lot of newsletters. So I have a lot of time for big LinkedIn content creators. But yeah, listeners for sure should get over there and follow Jason's newsletter, The Bridge, because I've learned quite a lot reading that actually. Great. Well, Jason, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on your show. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.